I'm Krista Tippett. The Reverend Richard Sizek is vice president in Washington for the National Association of Evangelicals, an umbrella group for 25 percent of American voters. Sizek has worked to expand the movement's focus to address climate change and torture as moral issues alongside abortion and gay marriage. Some conservative evangelicals recently tried and failed to have him silenced. This hour, hear the priorities, passion, and forthrightness that have made Richard Sizek a symbol of what many now call the evolution of American evangelicalism. The gospel has priority over our politics, and at times that means to be biblically consistent, you have to be politically inconsistent. And you can't simply become a wholly owned subsidiary of the GOP. You can't do that and be faithful. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. Look for Krista Tippett's celebrated new book, A Chronicle of Religion in Our Time, Speaking of Faith, the book, in bookstores now. I'm Krista Tippett. Richard Sizek is evangelical Christianity's key advocate before Congress, the White House, and the Supreme Court. In March of this year, conservative Christian leaders demanded that he be silenced or removed from his post, charging that his concerns for poverty, climate change, and torture have shifted attention away from moral issues like gay marriage and abortion. But for Sizek, war and the environment are moral issues, too, and his positions have been broadly affirmed by other evangelical leadership. This hour, we revisit my wide-ranging conversation with him that stunned our listeners in 2006, especially those who thought they had evangelical Christianity figured out. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, the evolution of American evangelicalism. Evangelical Christians are not a new factor in American life, but for most of the last century, they kept themselves at a distance from electoral politics and public policy. The National Association of Evangelicals, the NAE, was first formed in 1942 to provide an umbrella group for an evangelical political and social voice. Today it represents 54 denominations, 45,000 congregations, and a quarter of American voters. The current proactive politics of evangelical Christianity also reflects a new theology. And this has been a work in progress for all of Richard Sizek's 27 years with the NAE. From disengagement to engagement by the religious right, what some people call ready, fire, then aim, to a more concerted kind of new internationalism, full circle now to an engagement on all the issues in such a fashion that I had a professor at UC Berkeley say to me, do you realize that what you're doing in broadening the agenda for the evangelical movement is you're retracing 100 years of American religious political history? Richard Sizek finds his spiritual forebears in revolutionary evangelicals of the 17th and 18th centuries. From early American Presbyterian ministers who broke with the British crown to Christians like William Wilberforce, who led the anti-slavery movement. Sizek is an ordained Presbyterian minister and a trained political scientist. He first came to Washington in the era of the moral majority. During the 11 years in which he has been the NAE's chief representative in Washington, an evangelical Christian, George W. Bush, has twice been elected president. For most of that time, Richard Sizek was principally an insider, a behind-the-scenes operator. When we spoke last year, for example, he was far less famous than his more conservative colleague, then-president of the NAE, Ted Haggard, who resigned after a sexual scandal last November. Richard Sizek himself has now become a lightning rod, but he tells me that the painful events of recent months have prompted a constructive and necessary conversation among evangelicals. 
a broad social and political agenda remains for him the only way to fulfill the Christian calling, as he puts it, to care for humanity and the earth. I still happen to believe, for example, in the defense of democracy, human rights, religious freedom. Man, I also agree with St. Francis as a biblical Christian that every square inch on earth belongs to him, to Christ. And so unlike the evangelicals of the 40s and 50s, I always believe that it's a false choice preaching the gospel or doing compassionate ministry. That's a false choice. It's not one or the other. We have to both be a gospel witness, but we also have to be salt and light in society. And that's not altogether universally shared. There are columnists today, one of whom objected, for example, to my advocacy on climate change to say, there's nowhere in the scripture, in the gospel, does it say that we can, will, or should influence this earth prior to the return of the one to whom we owe absolute allegiance, Jesus. He said, there's nothing in the scriptures that says we'll ever change this world. I said, well, that's pre-1940s fundamentalism. It's not evangelicalism. You have become quite a spokesman for evangelical Christian concern about the environment. And, you know, I wonder if that's something that surprises you. Is that something that's on your agenda, that's on the evangelical Christian agenda, that that you would not have imagined there 25 years ago or even... I would have never imagined it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just uh, would have to say I had a conversion. Well, tell me about that. Not just to Christ, Mm -hmm. you see, many, many years ago, but in 2002, I had a conversion to the science of climate change. And as a consequence, I've become not just a a spokesperson of some sort for addressing climate change, but I happen to be articulating a re-engagement with science because our evangelical forefathers rejected science. Right. They did so by their witness at the Scopes monkey trial, saying, no, 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 we stand for Christianity, not evolution. And thus they retreated in mass from engaging on a critical front that in this time and year, 2006, we simply can't do anymore. And we can't simply say anymore, well, Religion and science are inevitably pitted against one another, and we opt for religion over science. And yet that's exactly what's occurred over climate change. The third rail of politics is said to be social security. You touch it, you die. President Bush has sort of discovered that again. But in the relationship between religion and science, climate change is global warming, if you will, is the third rail. You touch it, you die. Well, I've touched it. And you're living to tell it. I'm living to tell the truth. Well, all right. I want to and talk I about... And I believe that literally, to tell the truth. All because, right. you see, we have to be very careful when we understand moral principles that we apply them in clear and reasonable ways. And what has been occurring in our movement, I think, frankly, is that uh, we have looked at some of the moral principles that ought to guide us, but not others. So we look at the sanctity of human life and the protection of the traditional family, but we virtually ignore and have caring for God's creation. And isn't that a moral principle? And so good conscience requires a good grasp and a good application of moral truth. Well, tell me about your conversion experience in 2002. What happened to make you think differently about this and think of it alongside other moral principles like the sanctity of human life? First of all, I met great men of science who, like Sir John Houghton, knighted by the Queen, the head of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who came forward and said to me, you can believe in the science and be a faithful biblical Christian, and I am, he said. Mm -hmm. And so in a humble way, not arrogantly, admitting the questions that still exist, John Houghton and many others for three days walked some of us that were there in Oxford, England, through all the science, through our biblical teaching and responsibility. And all I can say is in a John Wesley kind of fashion, my heart was warm. My heart (laughs) You know, was changed. And I realized I could no longer sit on the sidelines because, you see, for years I had said, well, 
One side says this, the other side says that. There's no reason to get involved in this fight. And a lot has changed, it's true, in the last 10 years. The science has become so compelling that it's hard for me to believe that any evangelical Christian is willing to say, much less a leader, as some have done, that there is no consensus on the cause, the severity, nor the solutions on this subject. I just can't believe they're willing to do that. I think that, that there are evangelical Christian leaders who are taking a position on climate change today by saying, well, doesn't matter, we don't care, not unlike our fathers who took a position on civil rights that said, doesn't matter, I don't care. And they discredited the gospel in themselves and they had to apologize. And I dare say it won't be long before some of the evangelical leaders who have said, don't matter, don't care, that they'll have to apologize. National Association of Evangelicals Vice President Richard Sizek. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the evolution of American evangelicalism. My guest, Richard Sizek, has said that when we die, I don't think God is going to ask us how he created the earth— But he will ask us what we did with what he created. In 2006, several prominent conservative evangelicals, including James Dobson and Charles Colson, stopped the NAE from adopting an official policy on climate change, arguing that global warming is not a consensus issue like abortion for evangelical Christians. But since then, more than 100 prominent evangelical leaders, including the presidents of 39 Christian colleges, have signed an evangelical climate initiative calling for action on global warming. And this past January, Richard Sizek helped coordinate an unpublicized retreat between evangelicals and leading scientists such as E.O. Wilson. They issued a joint urgent call to action to political, scientific, and religious leaders to combat the devastation of the natural world. When I spoke with Richard Sizek last year, I asked if he was experiencing an open conversation on climate change and other kinds of issues out in the larger evangelical world. Everywhere I go. Okay. And I'm around the country a lot. From visiting, for example, eastern Washington state for a niece's wedding and confronting the pastor. You had a small town in eastern Washington and saying, well, you're a church of the NAE. What do you say? You read my newsletter, don't you? He said, yes. I said, well, am I off the mark? Am I simply walking off the left-hand face of the earth, as some senators on Capitol Hill have said? Am I simply walking to my own tune here, or are you with me? And around the country, evangelical leaders and lay people and young people has said, no, keep it up. You're hitting the right notes. Now, you find yourself in very broad company in taking these views. You know, you're, you find yourself, I believe, mm-hmm. speaking with and working with groups which, from a variety of religious perspectives and also secular human rights perspectives and scientific perspectives. Is that in itself a new experience for the evangelical movement Oh, for sure, because we're not ecumenists, and we're not the ones you see who have historically reached out across Mm -hmm. faith lines to collaborate with Jews or Muslims on anything, much less mainline Protestants. And I mean, on the environment, you're also in there in some sense with Buddhists and pagans and, right? Oh, (laughs) yes. I'm in company with those who you see have never considered evangelicals their friends. Right. We're those reactionary folks who are itching for a fight. It's wrong to fight against environmentalists. Our battle isn't with them. When we've got our own feet on the ground and people understand that we're operating out of a biblical perspective to love God and his creation and to serve him, when it's understood, and it will be because this is catching on fast, Mm -hmm. then we can collaborate at some point with those pagans who are so likened to be the environmentalists that are taking the road of mm-hmm. uh, you know secularism and all the rest. Now, look, at this is a bit of nonsense. They get stereotyped 
we get stereotyped. And for someone who is put in a box all the time, I, I think we ought to be a little more careful about this. So I, th- I think it's very interesting that you say it's important for evangelicals to claim their ground, to state their ground, to be taken seriously, for others to know where they're coming from and why they're doing this. Mm-hmm. But that then at that point, collaboration is not only possible, but sure. but possibly even part of the requirement of that stance of that you've taken. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, in passing, for example, 10 years ago, the International Religious Freedom Act that put religious freedom at the center of American foreign policy, protecting the persecuted overseas, we collaborated with Tibetan Buddhists, with feminists to pass a trafficking bill, with the ACLU to pass a prison rape bill, to pass... Uh, the president's PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, uh, to collaborate with gays and lesbians to do that, to save lives, then surely it's not heresy to collaborate with environmentalists. Okay. A lot of environmentalists are biblical Christians. I thought it was also interesting that you began talking about your change of heart and mind on this subject and talking about science, because as you well know, a lot of people in this country now think of evangelicals as anti-science, and specifically they're thinking of this subject of evolution. Now, in my work of conversation, you know, you talked about someone, a scientist on climate change, who said to you that he believes in this science and is also a faithful Christian. Mm -hmm. And I know also that there are scientists who believe in the theory of evolution and find that to be compatible with Christian doctrine and theology. You know, how do you respond to this idea that evangelical Christians are anti-science? Because the idea is out there that bluntly. I respond by saying we are first and foremost uh, people of the book, and the first four words of the book are, in the beginning, God. And thus I say, look, we believe in God. God created. That's what we believe. Not all of us agree on how we did it. Because there are theistic uh, evolutionists. Yes, there, there are evangelicals are. who have been evolutionists in that sense. Not mm-hmm. that they dispute that God did it all, but they don't adhere to a six-day creation. For example, one of the men that motivated evangelicals into politics in the early 70s, the late Francis Schaeffer, who wrote a book on the environment, for example, he didn't believe in a six-day creation. And yet, Today, there are those who would make that the litmus test for evangelicalism. Well, that's not the litmus test. Okay. Let's not throw out science in the pursuit of biblical orthodoxy. And I'm an orthodox Christian. I'm asked by people, well, which is it? And I say, "Uh, you decide that. Okay. So this for you is not, as you say, it's not a litmus test for the National Association of Evangelicals. Never has been. Okay. And to those who want to engage on all these issues... I say, take a lesson from Jesus. What did he do in the temple? Well, he listens to others, genuinely wants to know what they think, not for the purpose of tripping them up, having an argument or embarrassing them, but to draw them into a dialogue. And that's what is so fun about Washington. That's what's so fun about politics. And ultimately, that's so much fun in being a Christian, in my opinion. It allows you to engage with people about what are the most important issues of all of life. Ironically, I think for many people outside Washington, the images that are most familiar are not of dialogue, but of argument Mm. and polarization that Uh, seems irreconcilable. And I think that there are many images of Christianity particularly with evangelical faces and voices, a few, right, a few strident, Mm -hmm. memorable Mm -hmm. faces and voices that also do not evoke dialogue. Um, Oh, they don't. It's my way or no way. It's, uh, you know, take it the way I say it or you're out of here. Reverend Richard Sizek of the National Association of Evangelicals. I was looking through our mail today, and I here's an email that we received on a program we did with a couple of evangelical voices. And this is someone writing who says, 
one knows or hopes one knows that there are voices of reason within the evangelical Christian church. As an individual, however, I don't see it as the fault of the media that lots of us see evangelical Christians as mean-spirited, hate-filled, judgmental people. A few days ago, I was subjected to more than a half... Oh, she said she's been a librarian for 30 years. A few days ago, I was subjected to more than a half hour of being screamed at because our collection contained a biography of Darwin and the periodical Esquire. Among other things, I was called Spawn of the Devil and told that people like me should not be allowed to live by a person who kept telling me that he was a Christian. Um... You know, she goes on and tells another story about evangelicals who've been harassing, as she says, homosexuals in the community. She says, 10 or 20 people like that loudly proclaiming their Christianity can leave thousands of the rest of us trying to figure out ways to distance ourselves from them while still trying to live within the precepts that were taught by Christ and joining in worship with neighbors who see themselves as Christians. There are so many stories like that out there in our culture right now. So how do you respond to those stories? I simply say that uh, don't look to people. Look to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus. Uh, Religion is both the problem and the solution. It can be a great problem, especially in the way people behave. I, of course, reject that kind of strident, narrow-minded kind of bigotry that leads people to reject the Savior. Of course, I, I find that appalling. But I urge people to see in uh, the person of Jesus someone they can follow. I say that to Muslims as well. I was just overseas with ayatollahs uh, from a country which we don't have relations with. To those ayatollahs, I say, consider not America, the great Satan, but something else, a person. But it's hard. People become the offense. People. That, that, it's one thing when the gospel becomes an offense. Mm-hmm. That will happen at times because its claims are exclusive. There's one way. But that's a different story than becoming an offense ourselves. The claims of the gospel are exclusive. You're very clear on that, and evangelical Christianity is clear on that. And I want to know, what challenges does that present, or or is that a challenge, as you live in this pluralistic political culture of Washington? And, and as you say, you are now, with the National Association of Evangelicals, mm-hmm. you're, you're a force in the world, and you're dealing with Muslims and secular environmentalists. Yep. And mm-hmm. So talk to me about how your theology interacts with that reality. Well, in a postmodern society, we have to really be humble, and especially consider whether we can cling as Christians to earlier notions of power, especially in a pluralistic society. Earlier notions of power being that, well, we're the majority. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at what people really believe, you would have to say, despite the numbers, well, we are are in a postmodern world where truth is relative. And so to embody the love of God today calls, I say, for Christians to be the community of the cross. And that requires that we obey God's account of reality rather than Caesar's. God's account, not Caesar's. And too often, the gospel becomes identified with a political agenda. And that's what people are turned off by as well, even overseas. National Association of Evangelicals Vice President Richard Sizek. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, how the evolution of American evangelicalism might affect its partisan orientation. Visit our award-winning website, speakingoffaith.org, to hear behind-the-scenes clips of my conversation with Richard Sizek and read his response to the recent controversy over his leadership and agenda at the NAE. Also, subscribe to our podcast and iTunes Best of 2006 for a free download of this and each week's program. Our podcast now includes audio clips from my new book, Speaking of Faith. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith Streams Network. Faith Streams offers Youth Roots, an online community for youth leaders and their group members to hold meetings, post forums and blogs, and more. Interactive and on the web at faithstreams.com. Join the conversation about Speaking of Faith programs. Purchase discussion guides, program CDs, and other tools for your small group, book club, or classroom at speakingoffaith.org. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the evolution of American evangelicalism. We're revisiting my conversation with Reverend Richard Sizek, the Vice President for Governmental Affairs for the National Association of Evangelicals, or NAE, an umbrella group that represents 25% of American voters. The members of the board of the NAE resisted conservative Christian calls for Sizek's removal last month. The board adopted an evangelical declaration against torture, something Richard Sizek had championed. And the NAE has this year also unanimously reaffirmed the 2004 policy document that Sizek helped to draft, titled For the Health of the Nation, an Evangelical Call to Civic Responsibility. This details guiding areas for evangelical Christian political engagement. They include, in this order, the protection of religious freedom and liberty of conscience, nurturing family life and children, protecting the sanctity of human life, seeking justice and compassion for the poor, and working to protect human rights and the creation. I asked Richard Sizek about this agenda. It strikes me when I look at the points of concern and the priorities also on the documents on the NAE site that the moral values that are associated with the evangelical movement in our culture, it strikes me that the order of those has had more to do with political and cultural dynamics in this country, more than driven by the priority that certain issues have biblically. You know, for example, there has been much more of an emphasis on the sanctity of life, on the on the abortion issue, which has mm-hmm. been in this culture for decades. Yes. You're now starting to talk more about poverty, which, as several people have pointed out in my interviews, is overwhelming biblically. And the two are related. And here's, here's one statistic, Kristen. Mm-hmm. Here's one statistic. Cut the poverty rate by 10 percent, and you'll cut the abortions by 30 percent. And there are analysts on Capitol Hill who've persuaded me it's true, and they've shown so. And so if you care about the sanctity of human life, then I say care about whether people live desperate lives and care about whether the mercury being emitted from coal-burning power plants is infecting pregnant women. One out of six bear children with birth defects. One out of six in America, in the greatest country, I believe, in the history of mankind, one out of six children are born with forms of mental retardation and other disabilities associated with mercury that comes from air pollution. What what in the world is going on? Is that not a sanctity of life issue? Of course it is. Well, And and that goes right back to Genesis. Back to Genesis. Mm -hmm. And who owns this place we call Earth? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's owned. By the power companies and others. Is what you're speaking for kind of a sea change, kind of a realignment or a revisioning of priorities of the evangelical It's a revisionism that goes back not to a kind of mainline Protestantism that evangelicalism has always rebelled against, but to a 17th and 18th century evangelicalism that merges the exclusivity of the Christian message that says, yes, by the gospel of Christ and his death on the cross, you are saved, but also not without works and not without a compassionate caring for the world around us. And you can't simply live in the world we live in today. I share this conviction with Bono. Did you think you would be sharing convictions with rock stars when you took this I never thought that would happen either. (laughs) Okay. But uh, it happened at the prayer breakfast this past January. Mm -hmm. But go to bed at night and say that 
over a billion people live on a dollar a day and can't go to bed themselves with a full stomach? Can you live as a Christian happily in your suburban home driving your SUV? No, of course not. Not as a Christian. Not as a real Christian. And if, by the way, you happen to be a liberal, conservative, or a centrist, I don't care, the gospel has priority over our politics. And at times that means to be biblically consistent, you have to be politically inconsistent. And you can't simply become a wholly owned subsidiary, the evangelical movement that is, uh, of the GOP. You can't do that and be faithful. Are these questions being posed within the evangelical movement? Well, let not the major newspapers, um, which I don't think, by the way, are simply all driven by somebody's liberal agenda, but they're, they're not easily able to reflect the conversation, the colloquies that's right, the internal, going on. Yes. The internal discussions mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. who we are as a movement, which is a big topic of conversation. Who are we? I happen to think that we know precisely who we are. Well. And we are the people of the book who know that the conscience still speaks and we have to guide it in such a way to be faithful to objective standards of word and truth, right? But the conscience still speaks And it speaks, that is the uh, moral law of God, it speaks not just to us, but to others in society. It's also possible for those within society to understand where we're coming from as conservative Christians and respect us, even though they don't accept everything about our gospel, Mm -hmm. and collaborate with us. And to those people, by the millions in this country, I say, hear our voice and our cry. We aren't what you think we are. And hear us for who we really are, as humble people who love God and want to serve our fellow mankind. Hear that cry, not the boisterous, arrogant televangelist that asserts he knows everything. National Association of Evangelicals Vice President, Reverend Richard Sizek. Evangelical Christians have been more supportive of the war in Iraq than other Americans, according to polls, though that is changing. Last year, I asked Richard Sizek if he was aware of internal evangelical soul-searching over moral issues raised by this war. Exactly. That's why, for example, I signed a statement that an evangelical Christian cannot support torture. You did? At any time. Mm -hmm. I absolutely did. Okay. And by the way, the the association very clearly did not, not take a stand on this war. And why? Lest millions of Muslims believe in that part of the world that we're engaging in some kind of a religious war. Okay. For that very reason, the association did not take a stand on this war. And while individual Christians have disproportionately more than others supported this, I have to say and have said so publicly elsewhere that they're at a tipping point and it's going south for the president on this war because evangelicals are perceiving that it's becoming a religious conflict within Iraq and our soldiers are at risk. And willingly admitting, I do willingly admit that while I had said at the time I trusted the president's perception of the threat, I was wrong. I was wrong to trust the president's assessment of the security threat to the United States posed by weapons of mass destruction. I don't mind admitting I I said I trusted it and I was wrong. Now, others were wrong, too, but... There has to be some honest soul-searching here. You're exactly right. And admission when we're wrong. And I think this war has gone badly. Who wouldn't acknowledge that? And again, you know, I think what if evangelical Christians describe themselves and see themselves as moral actors in the political sphere, then people would want to see moral deliberation. And, you know, maybe that's the kind of thing that we can never see inside any movement. But I'm, I guess I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm wanting you to enlighten us on that, on that conversation 
I'm hearing yeah. very well, clearly uh, how you think about this, but you know, among your colleagues, um, when you're out there in churches in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I'm quite confident to say absolutely that that conversation is going on. That we can't simply, as evangelical Christians, um, assert the first thing that comes into our heads. Because that's what we see by some leaders popping off with whatever comes off the top of their heads. Where is the moral reflection in that? Of course, there isn't much. So we need a call to conversion ourselves and in so doing exhibit a real sign of humility. Look, we can deceive ourselves and uh, that idea sits uncomfortably with those who see conscience as the only guide. It doesn't sit uncomfortably with a theology that that has an idea of human brokenness and original sin, right? I mean, within the theology is is the, the presumption that human beings will have to correct their course. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Christian conscience is formed. It just doesn't immediately upon conversion occur. Mm -hmm. It is formed by study and reflection and, I believe, study and reflection of the Word of God first. But evangelicals have never put much stock in moral theology. In other words, we've jumped straight from Scripture, you see, to the political prescriptions without ever pausing to spend any time in the development of moral theology. And that is what's called for in these days that are so complex. Is that kind of a new chapter in this history that you and I began talking about, that for you, you know, which you want to trace back to the 17th and 18th centuries, um, you know, this line that evangelical Christians are walking now in this country is has never been easy between faith and mm. political responsibility. And, and great theologians and ministers have wrestled with that throughout yep. Christian history. That's right. Evangelicals need to reevaluate, myself uh, included, what it means to truly be a follower of God in this, the 21st century. We are citizens, as Augustine said, in the city of man and the city of God, both one foot in each, and living it is hard. National Association of Evangelicals Vice President Richard Sizek. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the evolution of American evangelicalism. My 2006 conversation with Richard Sizek who has become more controversial recently within the evangelical movement for his outspokenness on issues such as climate change and torture. In some tension with U.S. policy before a watershed G8 meeting last year, Sizek and other evangelicals passionately advocated for the U.N. Millennium Development Goals aimed at eradicating global poverty by 2025. I know that you have been very involved in the issue of poverty in Africa or in else and globally and meeting with President uh-huh. Bush before the G8 meeting. You know, I mean, is that something that would have surprised you as being on the agenda of the National Association of Evangelicals a few years ago? Or is that something that's been happening that, again, the rest of us just haven't known about? Evangelicals have always been great advocates, globalizers, taking the gospel overseas. Mm -hmm. But to make an impact, you have to be institutionally engaged. Most evangelicals are still not institutionally minded. They're willing to support the efforts of their local church, even willing to go overseas. Not recognizing, you see, that we have a greater obligation and that is to use the instruments of power when possible on behalf of the poor and oppressed. And those you see in Africa, probably the most dispossessed of all continents. And so, yes, I happen to think and have challenged leaders to do so. I I had this incredible experience meeting this summer with Gordon Brown, the prime minister-to-be in the UK. Was that before the G8 meeting? Just before the G8 meeting Mm -hmm. in London. And He is, Gordon Brown, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the future Prime Minister of 
Britain is, he said, the son of pastor. By the way, you know who also is? Angela Merkel from East Germany. Oh, I guess I knew that. I've met yes. her recently okay. as well All right. uh, on a trip to Germany, both the son and daughter of a pastor, mm-hmm. and both incredibly committed to facing these issues of the 21st century in new ways. Evangelicals have to be challenging our leaders on these subjects. On poverty specifically, is that and what you mean? poverty specifically. Economic inequity. Especially. Mm-hmm. And so I'm as strong as our other evangelical leaders, the Millennium Development Goals, the Millennium Challenge Accounts. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. I remember hearing Jim Wallace speak at an event in Washington and he's a, an evangelical on, on the mm-hmm. left side of, of the spectrum. I believe he... Was he with you in that meeting with Gordon yes. Brown? Yes, yes. And that Gordon Brown talked about his personal commitment and his British government's commitment to eradicating poverty, to taking that seriously. And I think that Jim Wallace said that you or someone reached across the table and said, uh, Mr. Chancellor, if you take that route, we American evangelicals yeah, we'll will be you. behind you. Is that right? Yep. Did you say that? Absolutely. Yeah, I said that to him. We'll support you, Mr. Brown. And I'm absolutely committed to that. It would be easier if the word love was exclusively a noun, but it's not. It's also an active verb. Love your neighbor as yourself is an in-your-face concept. It's taking the love of God and applying it to otherwise fearful situations. And God's love is non-discriminating. And yet we discriminate. We discriminate in the allocation of our resources. You have to love not just your family and friends who agree with you, but you have to love those you don't agree with and love those you don't know. Our neighbor is anyone on another continent. And so That's why, among other issues, it's impossible to separate global hunger from global warming because the emission of 7 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases annually is creating a warming effect, which is producing desertification in Africa, more and more people losing land to the desert. I know the king of Morocco made his plane available for my wife and I to fly out into the desert of the Sahara to see what is occurring. Hmm. And more and more acres by the tens of thousands are lost each year. And in not a long period of time, the fresh water available in sub-Saharan Africa is going to be gone. Gone! And we are going to experience wars over water. Now, this is a an awful thing to imagine. So loving your neighbor means doing something about that. You do know, I'm sure, that what you choose to talk about and how you choose to talk about it are not, you know, they're not the evangelical sound bites that are frequently out there. And I choose my words carefully because I never think that sound bites give us the whole story about anything. Do you speak about these things in non-evangelical audiences often? And, you know, mm-hmm. are you met with skepticism? Are you met with oh, surprise? I was, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Uh, some have said I've never heard anybody speak the way you speak. Almost every occasion somebody comes up to me and I have my wife to, to affirm that. Sometimes they're just shocked. Other times they, sometimes they're reactive and not always positively. Right, right. Uh, I, I had a wonderful conversation for all, over, well over an hour in El Sharif Congregation in downtown San Francisco just a few weeks ago with women, predominantly, though some men, who just went after me on the subject of uh, abortion and contraceptives and the rest. And it was a frank conversation. And yet everyone at the end agreed, wow. This is what everybody in America ought to have, is a Mm -hmm. conversation like this, especially Mm. with that neighbor who you know votes the other way based upon the bumper sticker on his car. (laughs) We do conduct too much of our conversation via bumper uh, stickers, don't we? Yeah. So are you the real story? Is this the real evangelical story? I'm just a reflection of what is also occurring by the thousands and tens of thousands. I say even millions in America. And I say that not on my own word, but on the basis of other leaders who have affirmed the same message and say, 
we're all on the same page in this sense. We're all speaking, you see, in a way that hasn't been spoken before, and we cite— uh, You mean as evangelical Christians? As evangelicals. Never before. Mm-hmm. You know, as, I've never spoken this way before. But uh, look, Second Timothy 1, 7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And frankly, when it comes back to science and other issues, we, 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 he's given us the wherewithal to speak with a sound mind. But the place to start is with a disciplined study of the elements of one's own faith and belief system. And through a study of religion, imagine that, a faith, it becomes easier, yes, to even achieve humility. This very um, fluid conversation is taking place and this process of collective discernment, which I hear you describing, you know, is it possible that as we move into other elections in other years, these party affiliations might look different, that voting patterns might reflect that? How do you think about that political future? I think that uh, anything can happen. (laughs) Look, political ideologies are functionally religious. And by that is meant that they explain the past, identify humanity's ills, and they seek redemptive solutions. And thus, every ideology, left, right, or center, is shown to contain some apprehension of the world, as it is, but also contains errors that distort human life and lead inevitably to flawed uh, some would say even tyrannical public policies. And yet, I happen to think that good theology can drive out bad theology, and good theology leads to solutions for everyone. For example, I don't think we're going to solve the problems in Iraq with more soldiers, with more weapons. I think the solution, for example, to 9-11, you know, I'm suggesting that there's going to have to be a political solution in Iraq, not a military solution. And I'm also suggesting by these comments that the best antidote to 9-11 is good theology. And thus I'm engaged in dialogue with Muslims internationally. I have to be. Richard Sizek is Vice President for Governmental Affairs of the National Association of Evangelicals and editor of its monthly publication, Washington Insight. He has not made many public statements in response to recent attacks on his positions. But at the news that we would be rebroadcasting this interview with him, he sent an email. He wrote... The controversy over my speaking out on these issues, while at times painful, nonetheless prompted a very constructive and widespread conversation in our movement that is a long time coming. The end result is that millions of evangelicals have risen out of their pews to say amen to a broad agenda of concerns in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Your program was about the evolution of American evangelicalism, and this trend has taken off in a way not even I could have imagined. Finally, Richard Sizek mentions that the National Association of Evangelicals will co-sponsor an event at the National Press Club on Earth Day later this month, urging churches to seek status as green buildings and to devote attention to creation care and global warming in Sunday schools. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Contact us at speakingoffaith.org. The companion site for this program features more of my conversation with Richard Sizek and his response to the recent criticism of his priorities. 
Our podcast includes an MP3 of each week's show, and now we're adding exclusive content beginning with audio excerpts from my new book, Speaking of Faith. Discover more at speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck and Jody Abramson and associate producer Jessica Nordell. Our online editor is Trent Gillis. Our consulting editor is Bill Buesenberg. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. And I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith Streams Network. Faith Streams offers Youth Roots, an online community for youth leaders and their group members to hold meetings, post forums and blogs, and more. Interactive and on the web at faithstreams.com. Sustainability coverage supported by Calvert, mutual funds, college savings, and retirement investments in companies committed to responsible environmental, social, and governance practices. Online at calvert.com. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Next week, Ingrid Matson, the first woman president of the Islamic Society of North America. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.